Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it. You love it. It is Victory Lane. Today is episode 75, and we're paying homage to possibly a future NASCAR Hall of Famer. Honestly, in my opinion, I don't think he's Hall worthy, but that's a different conversation for a different day. Although he is, unfortunately, the late Neil Bonnet. Dad has more. Thank you, Duve, and greetings to all you party people. With apologies to our host, we take a break from the Cars movie references this week and hit the way back button on number 75, where we pay a fond remembrance to a member of the legendary Alabama gang. 828 starts for number 75 in the Cup Series and six wins, four of those coming from Neil Bonnet. Bonnet was born in Hueytown, Alabama, and cut his teeth as a crew member and protege of Bobby Allison, thus the Alabama gang connection. Lawrence Neil Bonnet had 361 starts in the Cup Series and won 18 times at all. He drove and won for the Wood Brothers. He drove and won for Junior Johnson. And in 1983, and then again in 1987 and 88, he drove the 75 and won for legendary engine builders Bob Rahilly and Butch Mock and their Ray Mock team. You probably remember his iconic number 75 Valvoline car. Bonnet suffered a horrific and life-threatening crash in 1990 at Darlington. Following that, he made a name for himself as a TV commentator, and he was a good one but the racing itch never went away. In 1993, Bonnet's racing and hunting pals Richard Childress and Dale Earnhardt gave him the chance to come back into racing. He jumped at it. Going into the 94 season, Bonnet had secured a ride and sponsorship to run six races for owner James Finch. But during the first practice session for the Daytona 500 that year, A shock mount on his car broke going into turn four. He swerved onto the track apron and then up the bank before crashing into the wall nearly head on. Bonnet did not survive the accident. He was 47 years old. That weekend saw another racing death at the track when Rodney Orr was killed in a practice crash, also caused by a shock mount failure, four days following Bonnet's fatal shunt. Their deaths came in rapid succession during one of the Goodyear Hoosier tire wars. Hoosier immediately withdrew from the race following Orr's crash. As we discussed in a recent Way Back When segment, who knows what might have been had the Hans device been available for them both. Neil Bonnet ranks tied for 47th on the list of all-time NASCAR Cup Series winners and he's been nominated twice for induction into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He was a good one. That's all for this week. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad. Always good to hear from you on the Way Back segment of the show. 
But on the rest of the show, we have the race from Sin City to recap with a surprise winner to boot. Hometown boy finally gets the victory. Kurt Busch, we're going to talk all about that. Talladega to look forward to briefly in the round of 12. Plus, the star of the show, Chase Cabry. Part one of our conversation. Talked for over an hour, almost an hour and a half, so I had to break it up into two. He was brutally honest and funny per usual, and I loved it. One of my favorite conversations to date. So this is the first of two installments of our conversation with Chase. It was great. I hope you'll enjoy it, and we'll get to that shortly. But first, start this episode off as we always do with a good old-fashioned Las Vegas Motor Speedway recap. Let's get right down to the nitty-gritty. It was a bit of a snoozer for the first like 75% or so of the race, but things got crazy at the end because there was a caution in the middle of green flag pit stops with about, I don't know, 30 or so laps to go. Came out for debris. Denny Hamlin was mad. And that left only one playoff car on the lead lap. All the other ones were trapped a lap down. And that one car that stayed out longer and caught a caution, Kurt Busch and the number one car for Chip Ganassi Racing. So everybody else, while they pit, they're lapped down. So they take the wave around. That's a big oof. The running order was so jumbled up. It was hilarious to look at on the ticker. In the top 10, you had John Hunter Nemechek, Corey LaJoy, Christopher Bell, Kurt Busch leading. Oh, it was it was glorious. I loved it. And then another yellow came out for Jimmy Johnson blowing a tire, unfortunately. So that that caution, most people pitted. The people that being that took the wave around because essentially they were the they were like the only cars on that specific lap. So they didn't really have that much to lose. And Denny Hamlin came out on four tires, and when that restart came, he was mowing them down. But another yellow on the front stretch with about five to go set the stage for a green-white checkered. So is Kirk going to be able to hold off Denny on fresh tires? Did Benedetto, who was in second on the same strategy as Kurt, was it going to happen? Well, he made it happen. Kurt Busch holds off Denny, holds off Matty D. His first win of 2020, his first win in 22 career starts at Las Vegas, his home track, 20 years of agony defeat is now triumph that was the quote that I took away from Kurt's presser and man nobody celebrates a win like Kurt does (laughs) he was really emotional in victory lane he was emotional and and introspective when he was talking to us on zoom but overall he was just a happy guy I mean we saw him celebrating on the strip with his brother and his sister-in-law Kurt or Kyle Bush and Samantha Bush of course and also he he made sure to enjoy this one um, you saw what he did with the LIS VEGAS on the front stretch. I don't know what that was. It's like killing a spider or something. Um, but man, Vegas is Kurt's track, and he's finally tamed it and gotten the victory. For once in his life, it is all his. So celebrate, my friend. Uh, this this is twenty years of of agony and defeat, and and now today with triumph. I don't know if I have any more gas left or if I just filled my tank up to go win every race that I'm going to jump in next. This feeling of, of growing up here and watching the track get built from, from the desert gravel pit that it was by Richie Klein and, and his group. And then when Speedway Motorsports came in and bought it, I'm like, man, there's going to be a cup race there. I hope I can, you know, make my way up through legend cars. And just all the memories, all the memories of everybody, my mom and dad, uh, every Saturday night 
all the commitment they gave me and my little brother to make it in racing. You know, for me, it was a hobby. I, I never knew I'd get this far. And a guy named Craig Q here locally in Las Vegas, the owner of the Star Nurseries here in Las Vegas, took a chance on me and let me run his late model a few times. And we won a couple races and started working our way up. And it just, it takes, it takes a village to make somebody cut through and make it. And this is my hometown and I have so many people to thank and I just couldn't be more proud. And I know that they're very proud right now watching on TV, watching on NBC and, and Sports Network and seeing their hometown boy win at the hometown track. Crew Chief Matt McCall got some revenge on the racing gods because do you guys remember back at Daytona when the rains came and Justin Haley won? Well, Landon Castle was one of the drivers that pitted right before that happened, but Kurt Busch was the other one. And Matt McCall always kind of kicked himself on that. And I asked him if he was thinking about that specific instance when this one happened. Hey, Matt, I was just curious that when it was apparent you guys were sitting pretty and that caution came out, were there any flashbacks to Daytona last summer and saying, all right, maybe the racing gods are on my side for a change tonight? Well, I mean, honestly, the past three weeks, uh, uh, you know, at Darlington, the sort of the caution fell around spot. Richmond, the same way. I mean, not that we've had winning cars, but we've had, you know, easily could run top five at most of them uh, if it plays out. And, like, it's like for one time, I actually – it was a joke today on pit road. I was like, I'm just asking for it to happen one time for us to feel like we're on the good side of it. And today it paid off pretty big. So the ones where um, they hurt just a little bit for a couple spots uh, are not near as uh, gratifying as this is. And on a personal level, being able to bring Kurt the victory at his home track after 22 tries in his career, what does that mean to you on a personal level? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty big. I mean, he beats himself up when he comes here, and he talks about how bad he is, but he just literally ran wide open for 25 laps. So uh, he was on a mission. I, don't, uh, I think he doesn't give himself, give himself enough credit. He's obviously an amazing race car driver, and we're, we're, uh, we're lucky that uh, he's able to critique us every week because he was already critiquing after the race, so we know what we've got to work on next time. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty special, right? I mean, a guy that's uh, from here, um, to be able to get, get a win here, he's been obviously been chasing for a long time. Good deal. Thank you. Thank you. Matt DiBenedetto again. So close yet so far. Um, and we actually should know by now because at, at the time of this recording, it's October 1st. And the Wood Brothers were allegedly supposed to let him know by the end of September whether or not they were going to pick up his option for 2021. And I believe it was a three-year deal with potential options each year. But some reports from specific media personalities are indicating that he actually will be out, and I kind of confirmed with my sources, and that's what I'm hearing as well. So what I'm hearing, unless something changes at the last minute, is that Matty D is out of the 21. Austin Sindrick will presumably go into that car in 2021. That's unfortunate for Matty D, but a second-place finish, good confidence-wise, and hearing that news from my sources and the other ones, and we haven't made it official yet, obviously, but it kind of just makes what he says here a little bit more sad. Yeah, you know, I think uh, all good runs are great, <laughs> and um, this year's been quite crazy, but we know we have a lot of strength as a team and a lot to continue to improve on and build on. We're, um, I keep saying it, we're just barely, I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. We're just barely getting started, so we have, uh, I know we can win races and contend, um, you know, for sure. So, as far as this, to answer your question, though, in my situation, uh, you know, I think 2020 has, um delayed a lot of things that would have been you know figured out and and set in stone for next year for 2021 a lot sooner um you know 2020 has thrown a lot of variables in so i think there's just a lot of moving parts 
Um, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of speculating, but I, I'll uh, find out this week, uh, this coming week. But I think it's just a lot of logistics. Um, I, I feel like, you know, uh, the Wood Brothers are an amazing family, and you can tell they ooze, uh, you know, um, confidence in me, and that's such an amazing feeling. Uh, and same with Team Penske, you know, our alliance with them. Uh, I can feel that everyone has confidence in me and our team and knows, you know, we're, we're only going to continue to get much better. So I don't um, feel much on that side. I, I think more just, uh, you know, a lot of logistics and things that they're really trying to work out to get everything um, hopefully for, set for next year because I want to drive for this team for a long time to come. I love driving for the woods. And this jumbled up the playoff field quite a bit. So below the cut line, you have Austin Dillon, who's 12th, minus 32. He was running pretty well, but unfortunately had some power steering issues and had to go under the hood, finish like seven, eight laps down. Eric Almirola just did not have a good night at all. Like they just did not have it on speed. He sits 11th, minus 27. Clint Boyer, similar situation for his Stewart House Racing teammate. He's minus 20. And Kyle Busch, even though he ran pretty well, he did make some contact with Joey Logano early on in the race. Um, Joey's not making any friends, by the way. So Kyle Busch is actually below the cut line right now, minus nine. And then Alex Bowman's plus nine. Chase Elliott's plus 10. He won the second stage and was in the top five all night. And then on the last restart, apparently he got stuck behind Ryan Newman, fell back like a rock. He's plus 10. Joey Logano's plus 11. Martin Truex Jr. is plus 15. And Brad Keselowski is plus 16. So Kurt's win really jumbles up the back end of the playoff field. And going this weekend at Talladega, unpredictability, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. Quickly got a hit on the supporting series that were at Las Vegas. Chase Briscoe wins the Xfinity Series playoff opener, his eighth race win this season, which ties the great Sam Ard and the great Jack Ingram, their Xfinity Series record for wins in a season. And there's no reason to think he can't get some more before the season ends because I think they got, what, seven more races or so to go? And a couple of these tracks that they're going to go to are his bread and butter. Remember preseason, though, Chase said that he needs, quote, eight or so, end quote, wins to get to Cup in Xfinity this year? Well, he's got there. So now what is he going to do? Yeah, just uh, an unbelievable car. Um, first off, everybody at Stewart Austin Racing, to, to bring a car like that to the opening round of the playoffs is uh, a huge confidence booster. I feel like it's a, a big statement. So, um, you know, that thing was on rails. Um, it was so easy to drive. It was by far the best race car I've ever had, at least after that first stage. Um, you know, the first stage we struggled a little bit, but we were still good enough to, um, you know, get up front and, and win that stage. But after that, um, you know, it was it was so good to drive. Um, I wish we could have that type of balance uh, over these next six weeks because we'll be really, really strong if we do so. Um, you know, outside of that, just super happy to get fields in victory lane. This is the only race they do all year long. And um, to be able to get them in victory lane is uh, certainly a big deal. And, of course, the truck series was in action. Austin Hill wins in Vegas, gets lucky gambles. I think he, like, flicked off when he, like, climbed out of the truck on the front stretch. I wasn't watching live, so I wasn't really sure. But he won the regular season championship the week prior. And now he's got a free ticket to the next round of the playoffs by virtue of this victory. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, uh, we had to fight through a lot of adversity today. Uh, you know, we, we didn't start the race where we wanted to, having a bad race at Bristol. And um, track position was huge today. Uh, it seemed like uh, when you were back in the pack, it was really hard to pass. Uh, the aero side of it was pretty pretty bad. Um, really, everybody was fighting the same thing. And 
uh, we just had to keep fighting. We, we started the race off just way too loose, and we kept working on the truck, getting it better each and every stop. And uh, that last stop, my pit crew got me off pit road really good. Uh, and I knew when we were restarting up front there that um, I just had to get aggressive. And uh, that's what we did. You know, we got really aggressive and um, got to second. And then that, that, that last restart that we had, um, the 18 kind of helped me out a little bit because he tried to get to the outside of the two instead of pushing him. And uh, when it did that, it cleared me off the two. And, um, you know, I just had to run my race there. I had to run, uh, you know, perfect laps and uh, really just started protecting my line. I ran the bottom for a little while. And then when I saw that two was catching me, I moved up the racetrack and started running the fence. And, um, you know, just had to run where he was to keep uh, his uh, truck in dirty air. And that was really the biggest difference. Uh, you know, he was a little bit better than we were tonight, but uh, we just had to use all the tools and resources I had in the truck to get the job done. And uh, we did. And uh, it feels really good being able to go to Talladega and not have to worry about it. So uh, uh, it's really nice to, to get the job done with this Lanes Canada Toyota Tundra. And, uh, you know, I can't thank Scott and HRE enough for, for everything they do, um, they 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 have that no quit attitude, and um, you know we were just able to uh, to to get it done and be there at the end when it mattered. Interview time. It's Chase Cabry, first installment of two driver the number four for Rev Racing in Arca East and an all around racer. This first specific installment, we're going to talk about his NASCAR career. How it's seen its fair share of ups and downs. Um, but he started on dirt and we're going to talk about why that happened, how he started on motocross. He actually was on a path to become a pretty prominent soccer player, like literally was playing on the Olympic pipeline team, but he chose racing instead of that. So he could have been the next Messi. You never know how his brother Collins acceptance to the drive for diversity program actually sparked his interest in a stock car career and how he went down that path. We're also going to get into Memphis last year. That was the site of his first K&M Pro Series win. Talk about that and the success that followed him in that specific year, including getting injured at Bristol, his subsequent rivalry with Sam Mayer, including when he wrecked Sam at a go-kart race in St. Louis. That was one of the funniest things ever, and we reminisced about that. Some of the perks that come being associated with NASCAR Next, the classes that he was in, and also, I have some fun trying to pronounce his hometown, which I now know is pronounced the Notasasa, but I thought it was the Natasasa. And also, Chase reveals that he peaked in high school, at least to me, that is. So here is the first installment of our interview with Chase Cabry. Me and this guy go way back, as in like three, four ish years. So if you're three, four years old, we've known each other our whole lives, but it's Chase Cabry. Driver the number four for Rev Racing in the Arkham Menard Series East, an all-around racer, and we will get to that because you race anything and everything, pavement, dirt, we know that. But we're coming off of Bristol where you had yet some more bad luck. This year has kind of sucked for everybody, I feel like, in general in 2020. And you two on the racetrack, it seems like you just can't get out of your own way when it comes to mechanical failures, huh? Yeah, uh, we, we've struggled this year. Um, it sucks. I, I mean, it's part of it. Um, we're, we came off a really strong season last year. And then uh, this year, we just weren't fast at New Smyrna. And um, then, you know, the next race, we Phoenix, we ran decent. And then I, I made a mistake on the late race restart, ended up not taking myself out of contention for a top five. And, you know, just – 
things happen throughout the year, and then I've had mm -hmm. some bad luck. And can just blowing tires left and right. So, um, you know, it's part of racing, I guess. Um, it's it is what it is. Um, and there's no, I you know, I don't really dwell on the past that much. I used to in the past, but uh, the more I've grown up and gotten mature, it's just, I mean, it is what it is. You can't change things that happen in life. You can just stay focused on what the, the future might hold. Well, good for you because we're going to, we're going to be talking positive today. No dwelling in the past, no negatives, all positivity. Cause that's what we need. Um, as I mentioned, you raced dirt a, dirt a lot, but I actually didn't know until I did some research on your website that you raced motocross at first. So you were on two wheels instead of four and your dad kind of got you into racing and it seemed that two wheels was the start. Yeah. So I actually started on dirt bikes. Um, and it, that was where I kind of fell in love, uh, racing and, um, and I really enjoyed motocross and we traveled up and down the nation, up and down the coast and, um, into the Midwest. And, uh, we did the whole moto scene and just too many injuries kept building up and, um, I was never the kid that was like, let me take it easy and not get hurt. I was so I was fast, but I was fast enough to hurt myself. Of course. So it was like, if that kid's going to hit the double, I'm going to hit the double, too. Um, if he can make it, I can make it. And um, and so, yeah, it's that's part of moto. You know, it's a raw sport. Uh, it teaches you how to be, you know, on your pins and needles at all times and doing you know, some of the craziest stuff you've ever think. So, I mean, I, I was 10 years old and my dad cut my cast off that I broke my arm the day before and said, all right, go ride, you know, so <laughs> wow. it makes you tough. It makes you really tough. And, uh, but yeah, that's where, that's where it all started. It was good old moto days. So you broke your arm one time. I'm sure you broke a lot more limbs. What was, what was the worst injury that you sustained motocross? Um, I mean, they all sucked. Um, I bet. Uh, I mean, they were all, I don't know why I was always to my left arm, um, huh. and my, my wrist twice, my humerus three times, my collarbone twice. Jeez. Um, and you're 10 years old. Yeah, I was 10. Man. So I started when I was four. So it was an ongoing process. I mean, the, the one where I had to get surgery on the collarbone was, I mean, but that's a pretty standard surgery. Everybody goes through it. Um, when the, you know, if they break it, good enough. So, um, but yeah, the call, the one where I had to go out surgery because it was coming through my skin was probably the gnarliest one. Ooh. Um, but yeah. Which one was that? Was that your collarbone? Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it was actually fine at first. It was just kind of sitting there. It was just like a tree branch, and uh, it was sitting like this. And doctor told me if I could get through two weeks of not moving, not rolling on it in bed, not doing anything that it would be fine. Um, but the problem was is that I rolled on it in bed, I guess, and it finally broke all the way through. And when it did, it started to come out in the skin, oh. and uh, they rushed me into surgery right there. So, How old were you? Uh, that was that one was more recent. Uh, that was I was 14 or 15. Jeez. So this happened in bed. So, like, are you, like, half asleep, and then you just, like, start screaming because your bone is sticking out of your body like what happened yeah actually i didn't even realize it i woke up the next morning like a normal time and was like dude something hurts and i was like <laughs> oh, 
holy crap, dude, like there's blood all over me. So yeah. Um, I guess when you, when you race moto, it toughens you up quite a bit. Jeez. So were you like a big Ricky Carmichael, Jeremy McGrath guy when you were growing up? I mean, a lot of people that race in NASCAR, you know, said that they grew up being a Jeff Gordon fan, Tony Stewart, Jimmy Johnson. But were you looking up to the guys on two wheels? Yeah. Yeah. So Ricky was, uh, my, my idol. That's why I was number four for yep, motocross. Um, and that's why when I came to ref and they had the two, four, the six and the 42, I was like, I, I would take the four. Like that's, that's been my childhood number. Um, and I've always stuck with the four uh, and dirt. I've been the 41 at times. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only reason I was that is because when I went to Loretta's, which is the biggest national of the year, um, it went from, there was some kid already had the four, so I had to change my number, and I just added a one to it at the racetrack. I was like, man, that kind of looks sweet. So, but yeah, Ricky, he was the uh, the reason I've been number four my whole life. You ever get a chance to meet him? No, I've never met Ricky actually. Next time you're at the track, you got to stop Kevin Harvick in his tracks because he's he's <laughs> friends with Ricky, I think. Yeah, and yeah. be like, listen, man, you're number four. I'm number four. I raced dirt for a while. Hook me up with Ricky. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Who knows? Plus, I mean, at Daytona too, they have the uh, they have the um, Monster Energy Supercross race, and I think Ricky does some commentating for that. So you can yeah, finagle so we, your way into the booth. Yeah, Ricky does. Uh, he does a lot of the commentating, but he does a lot of like he builds all the tracks. Uh, true, like does true. a lot of the track layouts and stuff. So where did the love for dirt racing specifically come along and? I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but primarily and pretty much the only discipline that you do is micro sprints. So where did the love for dirt come along and why micro sprints instead of anything else? Um, so I can't, dirt racing came when I was down in Florida. When we got out of go-karts, my parents tried to find something else for us to do. And uh, we went to a go-kart track, a local go-kart track. My dad was like, like, let's do this. So we started on dirt over go-karts and then Someone said, hey, you know, you guys should start doing something else. You know, look at this, look at this. So my brother actually went to the pavement modified world and then to the pavement sprint car world. And then that led him to the dirt sprint car world. By the time I was old enough to do anything, he was already in dirt sprint cars. Was this so, Colin? Yeah. So okay. so by the time he was at that age, it was like when I was ready to move up the – next step was a micro so i moved up and ran the micro and then colin went on and progressed through rev uh late models and K&N and everything and I, I was like two three years into micro racing and then um i actually stopped racing for a year um i was a huge soccer player and i uh, loved to play soccer was traveled all over playing soccer so um I love that sport, and uh, I it was getting so physically demanding as far as time-wise that I wasn't able to do both. So I chose soccer at one point um, and then went back to racing. And by, by the time I did, uh, we were already moving up here, so I only got in – so we still had the sprint car. I got in it, like, once for a test session. Um, and then by the time we got up here, there's no sprint car racing up here. So we sold it and got me a payment late model and then ran those for a little bit. Um, and until I got on rev and then I was like, man, I, you know, like I want to get back on dirt. So I got an outlaw cart cause they raced those at Millbridge weekly. 
and uh, ran the outlaw cart for a little bit. And then then they started running micros more out there more and more. And I was like, all right, well, I'll get a micro again. Hell, that's fun. And so I've just been doing that for a little bit. But, um, yeah, I actually got my micro here at Rev and i um, building it back. I just got back from powder coating, and uh, it's being sold on Saturday. So, Wow, that's a cool deal. I didn't know that. Well, I knew that you played soccer, but I didn't know that it was that intense that you actually chose that over racing at one point. Do you regret that at all, or was it kind of just like a, I'm vibing, let me just play soccer? Yeah, so I was, uh, they have this program called the ODP program, which is the Olympic Development Program. It's a series of tryouts until you get onto the team. And so you do the regional tryout, then the state, and then you, so I was on that team uh, for the, it would be like the Olympic Development Program. Um, so I was on you that. You say that so that. flippantly, like that's a big deal. So I was playing for them, and then I had my competitive team that I played for still, and then I also played high school. So I was wow. literally I didn't stop playing soccer, and then I just got burnt at it. Hold on, so so are you tell me that you were on like a travel development team that had a pipeline to the Olympics, or am I hearing that wrong? Yes and no. Like it was the. Oh, it's the Olympic development program. Um, so yes. Uh, but at the same time, like there was so like I, the steps to get there would be yeah. so much further, you know, yeah, but, yeah. um, like at the time I was only 14 years old, you know, and you gotta be like 18. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there was still many years to get there, but yeah, I was playing that. And then I was, the captain of my varsity team from my freshman year of high school. Damn. Like it was just so much. And I big used, time over there. I constantly played soccer. <laughs> and then I was like, all right, like I can't do this anymore. I'm burnt. What position were you? Yeah, I played left mid. And then when I went to high school, I played center mid. Do you watch any now? Uh the Olympics, but just it, World well, Cup. The World Cup, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. The Olympics you know, like that's about it you should get into uh well i'm trying to think well i i guess in charlotte they're starting a new mls team and down yeah i down saw home, that do they have a team in tampa or no uh i don't think so i think they have one in miami and they may have one in dude Waterdale i don't even keep up with it anymore I don't, I, I don't even watch it i only watch the world cup that's about it well, if Charlotte FC or whatever the team is called, if they ever need like a super sub, you should put your name in the hat. Just relive your glory days. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go try out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mentioned Tampa. Um, so you're from there, but the actual city that you're from, I, I'm gonna attempt to pronounce it because I can't. Okay. Uh, Thonotasasa. Thonotasasa. <laughs> it's, no, it's was I close? No, Thonotasasa. Thanode assassin. It sounds like throat assassin. Thanode assassin. Okay. So how how often do people mispronounce it, and how did I do relative? Uh, I mean, I don't ever tell anybody I'm from there. I say I'm. You from just Tampa, say Tampa. So, yeah. Yeah. It's way too hard. The announcers look at that. They can't even say Cabri right. So me less Thanode assassin. Chase Cabri from Thotananana. That's exactly it. Like, well, dude, because when I was working at uh at Home Tracks, like I was updating the back end of the website and I was like changing everybody's hometown and stuff like that. So I went to Racing Reference and I saw that you were from what was it again? Thanada Sasa. 
The Note Assassin. The Note Assassin. Okay. Throat Assassin. Got it. And uh, I was updating that, and my boss was like, nobody knows what that is. Nobody knows how to say it. Just say he's from Tampa. And I was like, but but, but it says here. He's like, I know what it says. Just say he's from Tampa. I was like, fine. Better for me. So, like, whenever I was writing a story about you, instead of saying where you were from with the note assassin, I just said Tampa. So, that worked yeah. out for me. Yeah, way easier. There's some weird-ass towns in Florida, like... Zephyrillis, I think Eric Almirola is from there, and that's a water bottle Ze- brand, right? Zephyr Hills. Zeph- what did I say? Zephyrillis? Yeah, it's <laughs> Zephyr Hills. Whatever, dude. I don't know. My grandma's from Miami. That's all I know, okay? <laughs> well, okay. Um, you talked a little bit about the racing scene down there and how your dad kind of started you in carts, and uh, obviously your brother was very into that scene as well, dirt and pavement. But tell me a little bit more about that. I mean... Did you race all the time with your brother? Uh, was your dad there with you all the time before you obviously chose soccer over that? And also a second part of that question, like at at that age, you know, I was a fan all my life. So I would go to school wearing my NASCAR stuff, go to races on the weekends. And my friends would just be like, why don't you just go to the football game? Or like, why can't you hang out on the weekends? And they just didn't really get it. You know what I mean? So the second part of that question is like, what did your friends think of your lifestyle being so racing heavy? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. My friends were racing friends. So, like, I went to school. I did my thing. Like, even in high school, I went to school and did my thing. And I was friends with everybody. And they were like, oh, cool, you race. But it was never like, hey, this is – like, I I never made myself available to go. I never went to a high school party. I never did any of that stuff. So, it was never like, hey, you you want to come? Oh, no, I can't. I get a race. You know, come on. It was never like that. It was just Mm – like I was there, I was at school and I did my thing, got good grades and went and did my own thing. And, but like, I was never a big NASCAR guy. Like I never wore NASCAR merch to school. I never did. Like if I wore any merch to school, it was like a dirt sprint car. It was yeah. like a Sammy Swindell t-shirt um, or Kyle Larson or Christopher Bell or anything. It, it was never like a, you know, I'm going to go, I was more involved in the dirt sprint car world, which people down there were more in tune with because we had a local track, you know, mm-hmm. if they were like NASCAR, they're like, you want to be a what, you know what I mean? Like, but when it was yeah. talking about sprint cars, it was, Oh yeah, you know, no, they race out there at East Bay. Right. Yeah. 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 And so it was kind of more normal. There was a couple of kids in the school that raced out of East Bay as well. So like, you know, when you wore a, Sammy Swindell t-shirt people you know there was a couple people who knew what you were talking about or what you had on and so I mean that was pretty much it all right that makes sense yeah because because a lot of people that I talk to it's the opposite it's like they were known as the racing kid in school and it's not that they were made fun of for but it was kind of like they were that person like the outcast so to speak but it's cool that you actually had the opposite experience where it wasn't that at all. It was kind of like everybody knew about racing and people were like, Oh, he races. Cool. And there were some other people that did that too. Um, yeah, that's yeah, cool. I, was, because... I, I was homecoming King over here, man. I still got my crown. Were you for real? Yeah. Damn. Look at you, dog. <laughs> I didn't know that. You got to have your crown like in your trophy case with all your other sprint, uh, micro sprint trophies. Damn. Yeah. Impressive. Who was your date? Uh, my girlfriend at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Damn. Reliving your glory days. You're on the Olympic soccer team, pipeline to the Olympics, homecoming <laughs> king, winning micro sprint races. Damn. High school chase was the best chase. <laughs> wow. Didn't know we we're going to relive our glory days here, but that's what podcasting is for, right? <laughs> All right. Back yeah. on track. Let's see. Um, Good day. Drive for diversity. You were in the drive for diversity. First time, I believe, you were in the 2016 class. And then you wound up moving to Rev Racing the next year in 2017. Um, what was it like being a member of that class and being in the Drive for Diversity class in general? I feel like that would come with a lot of perks and you'd be able to start a lot of relationships that you ordinarily would not be able to not being a part of that class. And I'm sure that over the years you were in it multiple times during the 2020 class too, I believe. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that were in those specific classes with you that went on to have a lot of success and that you became really close friends with. So being a part of that program had to be pretty instrumental for your career. Yeah, um, it was, uh, it was crazy. The first year I ever applied, I didn't even make it to the combine. Um, and then the next year I applied, I made it and then went out and set quick time and was put into a cane in car the next year. So, um, it was, I mean, and then I was able to be with Ruben, my brother, and Jay Beasley. And still to this day, like, nothing against my teammates now, but, like, that was that was the best class. Like, that was a damn good class. We had yeah. so much fun. Goodness. We were all here at the shop working our butts off, like, really wanted it. And, um, and it's, you know, it's it was that was probably the most fun because uh, I had my brother and I was really focused um, and I had Ruben and then then you know years went on and it was still me and Ruben and me and Ruben me and Ruben and uh, we both you know we we matched well as teammates I never realized how good me and Ruben were as teammates to each other um, until you don't have you know just say Ruben with you right. Um, you don't, you know, you never realize how, how much teammates matter and how much they help at times. Um, and, and how fun it is to have a good teammate. Let me rewind for a minute. So, you know, we were talking about your, your high school and middle school years when you're super focused on dirt and soccer. Um, what was the decision-making process like? I assume that it had to be a family decision as well. And, and your older brother, Colin was a, a couple years ahead of you at this point. So maybe he was instrumental in this, but what was the thought, um, the thought process between going from a career like focused on dirt to I want to go the NASCAR route and do pavement stock car racing? So I was blind. Um, is the is the real answer? <laughs> um, I what happened was like two days before the combine when Colin first applied in twenty twelve. Um, my buddy was like, he was our mechanic on the sprint car. He was like, Hey, we should apply Colin for this. And I was like, you think we could? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. So I whipped up a video cause that's what I did. I did. Uh, I love videography and love editing and love everything about video. Um, so I went with him, you know, I had so many went with him to all the races, so I had so much video, so I just piled something together. We sent it in, he got accepted, and was like, holy crap, like, that was it. Like, <laughs> he, like, that was cool. So then he went to the combine, and then he was going to be, like, the developmental driver or something for the year, which means if someone got hurt, he was going to have the opportunity to go racing. 
Um, and he didn't, uh, we ended up renting a ride from Rev just to kind of show them Colin's skills, uh, in a late model. So he ran race to race. And then the next year he went back to the combine and then made the K&N team. And we were like, Holy crap. Like he's going to make it like, this is it. Like this is his, his big break. Everybody talks about trying to get a big break. Like this is it. He's got it. You know, this is his, his shot. And so we're like, you know, like, you can make good money in NASCAR. Uh, and so I saw him doing it. And then I went to the first K&N race and I was watching it and I, I knew Smyrna. I was like, man, this is cool. Like, I want to do this. Like, this is what this, this looks so cool. It's so big. Like so many people look up to it. This is badass. And so um, I decided right there that like I was going to give it a whirl. And then we came up here and, and here we are now. So it was seeing your brother's success that he had. And frankly, it seems like the the process for getting him accepted and then up to K&N, it seemed pretty easy. So it was, easy. A, it was a mix of like, this seems cool. It's really easy to do. You can make a really good career out of it. So I'm going to do it too. Exactly. Pretty much. And then I got caught off guard. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess let's get into that a little bit. Um, we're jumping around here because I want to come back to your brother and Ruben, and we'll also talk about Nicky Bobby, of course. But um, so you've been racing in K&N for a few years now. I, I want you to take me back. K&N, it's ARCA, whatever. Put a dollar in the swear jar. Same um, thing. Yeah. Take me back last year to Memphis, which was your first win in three years. I've never seen anybody more hype in victory lane than you that day. Because I remember I, I'm the one that gets all the victory lane climbout videos. And like the sun was setting behind you. So I was like, oh, maybe it'll be too dark. I don't know. And then next thing I know, you were climbing out of there. You were like pump fist pumping. You were screaming. I still have that video saved on my phone because it was like so artistic. Um, you, I mean, you were so hyped because it took it took a long time for you to get there. And it was a long, hard road, blood, sweat and tears. Um, and you earned it that day. Ruben was there in victory lane, gave him a big hug. You gave everybody on your team a huge hug. Take me back to that day and just what you remember about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember the test day. Doug looked at me during the test. And he was my crew chief at the time. And he said, we're good. Like, we're really good. Your, your sector times of getting into turn three and getting off turn four are two tenths better than anybody. And he said, and down, down there in one, you're even with the 21. So, overall, like, I knew I could beat him in this corner and we would stay even in this one. Um, and he's like, you're, you're really, really good. And so then we went to the race day and I, we were fastest in practice or I don't remember. We were good in practice. And then um, we qualified 10th, like just out of nowhere. And I got so pissed and I was like, well, this, this is it. Like, it's stupid. Like we suck, you know, whatever. And um, I started the race and, you know, it was just I, – I, I raced Todd Gillen for ninth for like 20 laps. He was, I think, still to this date, that might be the hardest person besides my brother to pass. Um, <laughs> no disrespect to Todd. I love Todd. I think he's a great kid. But, man, it was hard to pass him that day. He's um, the Ryan Newman of k Gosh, he was hard to pass. Um, but – yeah, like I said, I love Todd. He's a great kid. Yeah. And uh love to see the success he's having. But 
so we just started moseying our way through and I ended up getting to lead and and just kind of paced my race and and won and uh yeah it was cool it was like a lot I, I I hate when guys get out of the car and I've always get mad no matter if you win 200 times and they get out and they just like Ty Gibbs, like, what are you doing, kid? You cry. <laughs> you literally cry when you run second. Like, tears. Literal tears when yeah. you run second. And you win and you're like, dude, come on. Like, do something cool. Like, you should win every race. And the fact that you're not, like, do something. So, I don't know. And so I got, I mean, and I was amped and I got out. And I was hyped. I, I won the race. It was cool. Um, it was a feeling, you know, it's hard uh, to, to win races um, when, when, you know, you're dealt with the cars that we're dealt with and uh, to go up against teams like GMS. And I'm not trying to take anything from Rev. Uh, I love this program. I love this team. I love the guys that work hard, hard hours to making the cars as good as they are. Um, but you're racing against some really high-class teams, uh, GMS, Hattori, uh, those guys like that year. Um, and so when, when I won, it was, it was awesome. Like, it was so cool. Um, and, um, yeah, it's probably one of the moments I'm, I'll never forget. Did it make it sweeter that you know that you'd been in k for three years and that's kind of known as a series where these young kids, like, you know, you mentioned Ty Gibbs, Sam Mayer, Todd, can come in and just get in the best stuff and win right away and just go on their way up to trucks and Xfinity. And, you know, you, you had paid your dues. You'd been there for a while. You'd, you'd learned, you'd gained more experience. You'd gotten better every single year. And that was the year. And that weekend specifically was the race where it all came together for you. And you finally just got off the schneid. Yeah, it did. Um, It's, it's sucks to see, people come in and win right away you know it sucks I'm not gonna lie because like and I'm not I don't blame them if you can spend the money to do that do it you know if I could spend if I could spend the money that Ty gives his program puts in I would but I can't and I don't even have a a dime of that like I don't even (laughs) have 10% of their what they're spending like you know as far as in my pocket to be able to go race like it's just it's it's not feasible mm-hmm. um and so if i had that shoot of course i would mm-hmm. um but the you know the fact that i don't the fact that you know that i put a lot of time into this program and this car and um you know just to make it as good as possible and to go win a race it it was it was really special and uh, and people in the sport that that know you know the the real the real side of it, um, you know, respect that. And they respect that we're able to be competitive with guys like Gibbs and Mayer uh, from time to time. And I think it says um, it wonders about the crew, the cars. Um, and, and I think it says a lot about me as a driver as well. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And I, I will also remember that day for a really, really long time, because as you said, you know, it gets a little methodical with, at that point, it was Todd Gillen winning like every week out West or Sam Mayer winning almost every week in the East. So, A, when you see somebody new win, it's just it's a breath of fresh air. B, you know, developing the relationship that we had. It was cool to see you have the success and C, seeing the emotion that you had in Victor Lake. It was 
you were you were hype as shit. Like it was <laughs> it was nuts. Um, and like you said too, like like you know Kevin Harvick, he won this past weekend at Bristol, and he was super hype when he won, uh, partly because there were fans there. But he was also super hype in his last win at Darlington, also because there were fans there. But you know, I mean, he's won over fifty times in his career. He's won nine times this year, and seven of those nine wins, he's gotten out of the car and just been like, yeah, woohoo, like it's great, woohoo. Um, but it's so different and it's for the fan watching too. It's just like, you want to see somebody be actually excited that they want to race because it's not easy to do. And you lived that for over three years. So getting there and seeing your emotion, like that was, that was one of the best parts for me. Cause it was just, it was nuts. And I remember like you literally could not wipe the smile off your face. And I think you almost <laughs> popped Ruben cause you hugged him so hard. Yeah. Um, like for instance, I, I couldn't tell you who won the last truck race. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I could say America because I was there. But you <laughs> get what I'm saying. Like it's yeah. hard to remember certain ones, but I can remember Zane Smith's win because I remember his interview. You know what exactly. I mean? Like exactly. you remember those moments, but to see someone yeah, and just be like, it's you know, it's woohoo! Come on yeah. now, like Let, like going it. back to Ty, and I don't want to pick on him because because he's a good kid, but. I remember the Phoenix race earlier this year that Chandler Smith won because Ty was, he finished second and he was crying on pit road. Like, that's what I remember from that race. I, I barely remember that, you know, Chandler passed him with like two laps to go, but the takeaway from that race, you know, five, 10 years from now is going to be that like, it was 10 PM. It was pitch black outside. Ty was wearing sunglasses and he was crying because he finished <laughs> second. Um, and he's admitted that that's something he has to work on, but like, you know, I agree. And, and it's good to be emotional. Like when you win, when you lose, but when you win, you know, we want to see something. You know what I mean? And Celebrate, you showed us yeah. something. Celebrate it. Celebrate yeah. it for sure. And after that win at Memphis, too, you went on a hot streak. You won loud in the next week. I thought that the wins were just going to keep coming and not stop. I think you had three pulls in a row a couple weeks after that as well. Yeah, um, then I went to Gateway and almost won it. But we yep. had the kill switch failure. I was dominating. Oh, I remember that because you you pit you pitted at the halfway break and the car just wouldn't no, fire. No, it was forty right? to go. Forty to go. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah it was the second stage. Right, because I think that was also the race where uh, Todd Sue's and Haley Deegan almost fought each other. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> that was yeah. fun. Yeah. So I mean, you were flying that second half of the year. Um, but you finished second in the standings because nobody was going to catch Sam that year. Um, as you said, you know, GMS, I mean, Rev is, is great, but compared to the budget GMS has and the equipment that they have, it's just, it's hard to compete week in and week out with them. But you guys did exactly that. You competed week in and week out. You, if Sam won, you were second. If you won, Sam was second. If you guys were both leading laps in the race, like it was pretty obvious that nobody else was going to challenge you guys. Um, but all things considered, you know, looking back on that year, and I know it's a little bit recent, but now that you have some perspective on it, would you say that that was probably the best year that you've had in your K&N NASCAR ARCA career? Absolutely. I mean, it was, like you just said, it was every week we were on the pole and running second and battling, and I knew every week we showed up, we were going to have a shot. And in um, years prior, and, that was not the thought process for you. Like, that was the first year yeah. where you went every week and you're like, we can actually win. Yeah, yeah. It, it was the it was the first year at which everybody watched you at practice to see what what times you were running. Regardless if you were seventh on the charts, they knew in the race that car was going to be good. So let me watch his long run speed. You know, it was it was like that year that I felt like 
yeah, no, we're we're good. And and I know every race we're gonna show up to, we're gonna be good. And we showed it. Um, I mean, there was not a race that I can remember that I showed up to that I was like, man, we are junk. And just ran like junk, you know. So um it was it was cool to be that dominant all year long. And yeah, I'll definitely say that that's one of the top in my career. Absolutely. So obviously also that year was Bristol and, you know, you were running up front. I think you were leading the race. Um, and it was what turn four lap one, Sam makes some contact with you. Turn three lap one, Sam makes some contact with you, sends you into the wall. Um, at that point I'm like, Oh wow. Like this is a huge storyline. This is nuts. Is Chase going to get his car repaired? Cause you were still in the thick of the championship battle at that point. Um, so I'm like, like, can, can the, he get his car repaired in time? Is he going to be able to make his way back up there? Um, and Sam actually got penalized for aggressive drivers who he got sent to the back. Sam being Sam GMS being GMS. They made their way back through the field, won the race. Um, and I had no idea until I was scanning your radio, like 50 laps later that you were in excruciating pain. And I was like, how is this possible? Like he barely hit the wall. It's, it's crazy. Fast forward to the end of the race, like you need help getting out of your car. I, I, the look on your face that day compared to Memphis could not be more different. Uh, you got put in the ambulance. You got taken to the hospital because you hurt your back so bad. What the hell happened? So, um, I mean, I've got one race left, so I guess it doesn't matter this much now. But I don't run. I don't like I'm really weird on my safety stuff. Like I don't tighten my belts. I don't wear crotch belts. Like, so impacts hurt me way worse than anybody else. Interesting. Um, like on dirt, I'll unclick, unclick one of my hands so I can look more. Like, there's different. I, I don't know. I'm just. I guess I'm dumb. Um, yeah, not the smartest. Gotta say. But should I say that? Probably not, but now that I've got one race left, it's, I mean, what are they going to do? Come Who's check listening? my belts. Who's listening? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so uh, I was get down the corner, and I got clear, and I get down the corner, I get turned, back to the wall, and it was a harder impact than uh, w- what you see. Like, it bent the rear clip. It bent yeah. the center section. If you watch the body, the body folds up next to me like the door next to me was like this uh, and i just backed it in and so i guess in the way you sit the way i sit because i sit i don't run them tight so that i can slouch so my back has a huge arch from the seat so when i hit i guess it like like hyper extended almost right and and um it just got really 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 painful and at the time the adrenaline was like like i knew right away it hurt and i knew i could fight through it and then you know the motocross day sent in and i was like championship 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 like keep fighting keep fighting keep fighting like i could not go wide open and i was like guys like i don't mean to sound like a wuss but i like i'm gonna need some medical help here like this is rough i couldn't go wide open um, I was having to let go with my right arm because it was straining too much to pull it back. Mm-hmm. So I would just turn in a corner with my left arm. Um, and so I just ran the rest of the race like that. And I think I ended up getting back up to like eighth or so or seventh. Um, I can't remember. 
think you got a top 10. Could have been worse than that. And, uh, and then, yeah, and then I had to go to the hospital. So, yeah, uh, it's part of racing, I guess. It's, it's a sport. Um, it's cool to, like, it's cool that I can sit there and talk about it now and everything's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Sam and I are friends, but, um, at the time it sucked. So what was the official like diagnosis? Cause I remember I was texting Christy. I was like, is he all right? Like what's going on? And then once you got out of the hospital, I was like, are you good? Like, are you going to be able to race next week? How are you feeling? So like, what was the official diagnosis on your back and you know, what were the days and week like that followed? So what happened was like, there's a muscle in your back, like one of the main muscles, and I just tore it. Um, and it was just a tear, so it, it had a lot of pain. Uh, it's almost like when you roll your ankle or when it's super painful, and sometimes you're better off just breaking the damn thing. Uh, <laughs> it was like that. Uh, and so it like it just it was more pain than what it set out to be um, at first. Um, and that's why like I didn't want a big blown up thing even though it ended up being like i was like i just need help getting out of the car like i just want to get out of the car and and that be that but medical protocol calls everything else you know you were on a stretcher like you were being stretchered into an ambulance i was like this is bad yeah so when i was in the um infield care center they were like do you want to go to the hospital and they were kind of trying to check my back, but like I could not move it because it, the, the way the tear was, it hurt so bad. Um, it was so painful. So I was like, no, like I, I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't like, I'm fine. I know I'm okay. I don't want to go to the hospital. You know, like, I like, I think we should like, I like medical, like, don't worry, like NASCAR, you know, we want to do this and that. So I was like, whatever so we ended up going at that point um but yeah no it was painful uh but i didn't want to go to the hospital at that time i i actually you could probably ask those guys in the info care center i was like no please no like i don't want to go you're too stubborn <laughs> i guess but you said you and sam are all good now too because i know later on in the year like it got to a point where i mean i th- I don't remember what races after that. Um, maybe Watkins Glen. I could be wrong, but gateway. I, okay, okay. Because I remember, you know, every week I was ta- I was talking to you, and you were just like, "Oh yeah, I'll pay him back." Like I, I don't know when, but I'm gonna pay him back, and it's gonna be bad. <laughs> and I was like, "I don't know, man. Like oh, this could this could get ugly." Um, yeah, you're right. It was gateway because I remember. Um, cause I junked I, him in the go-kart race. Yeah. Oh that? my God. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you junked his, you junked his shit in the go-kart race. And, um, and I thought it was kind of like a joke. I was like, Oh, that's funny. And then like, you know, you got out, you were all like happy about it, whatever. Sam was kind of just like, well, that, that was like annoying, whatever. And I was like, so like, was that like for fun? Like, are you guys done? And you're like, Oh no, like I'm a wreck of shit tomorrow. And I was like, Oh, okay. Um, and I think it got to a point where Max Siegel actually got involved, right? And um, I think you texted me and you were like, hey, um, I'm having a meeting face-to-face with Sam tomorrow. Um, we're bearing the hatchet. Like, if you could cover it for home tracks, like, that'd be great. I was like, okay. So, like, the next morning I came there and I saw you guys, like, shake hands and you guys just kind of said what you needed to say and left it there. But for a good, like, three weeks, like... You you woke up every morning, lived your whole day, and went to bed thinking, "How can I wreck Sam?" Like that was that was all you did. Oh yeah, yeah, that was fun. 
Uh, that was really fun. <laughs> that uh, go-kart my... race was something. Yeah, so the go-kart race, I got wrecked. I was leading it, and I got moved. And then I was, like, back in the pack, and someone spun me. So I was like, well, I'm out of it. So I just waited the whole lap, and he was leading the race. And when the, we went to turn left, I just stayed straight and just cleaned them. I think at, um, in the start of that go-kart race, too, we you were, were on the front row with Sam. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Dude, I totally uh, forgot about that. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> those are good days. Uh, that was actually fun. Um, as people talk about, like, rivals and stuff, like, if I take away anything from my Arca and Canaan career, like the the rivalry with Sam was one of the most fun things. Like it was like I knew he was gonna be the one of the cars to beat every single week, if not the car. Mm -hmm. So I knew I had to battle him and I had no ties with him to like race him clean. So I knew if I got to him, I was gonna move him. And I knew if he got to me, he was going to move me. Like Watkins going, we got to each other for third. And I just, I wasted no time. I got to his back bumper and then throttled up and then just hit him. We were sideways through the carousel. I downshifted down to third and I was like, or downshifted down to second, saved it, back to third, cleared him. I was like, I that, that was too. sick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, those are fun times. And you guys are cool now too, because that's a. I think you said you're happy to see him have some success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. Uh, he's a good kid. At the end of the day, he's he's fast. Um, that day was unreal. He, I mean, he is he is a fast. He's in great equipment. Great equipment. And Marty is so smart, and mm -hmm. arguably the smartest guy in the garage. Um, and but Sam, it takes a driver to do it, and I think Sam does a really good job, um, you know. And it's cool to see him have some success. Uh, I think he's a good kid, and he'll definitely have a huge future in the sport. So uh, if he keeps winning like he does, you know, good on him. Yeah, for sure. And we're back. Good news. If you enjoyed that, there's more where that came from in less than a week. Because I hope next week's episode will be out next Wednesday or Tuesday. The reason that this came out a little late was because of the NASCAR schedule release. But the good news for you is we will have the second installment of that coming out next week. We'll get into a myriad of more topics, and it was it was really fun. So hope you stick around for that. Let's briefly preview this upcoming race weekend at Talladega Super Speedway. Blah. That's a note to you, the final lap weekly. Kerry Murphy and Toby Christie, if you're listening. Not much else to say other than it, it's a wild card race for a reason. Um, Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, NBC, I believe NBC, Kyle Busch, Clint Boyer, Eric Almirola, Austin Dillon, they're all below the cut line. What's their strategy going to be? Are they going to ride around in the back? Are they going to try to get up to the front? Are they going to be aggressive? Are they going to be a bit passive? We don't know. If I had to guess, I still think that manufacturer alliances are going to be a big, big part of this race. Like Toyota doesn't have a lot of power in terms of numbers wise so i think they're gonna hang out in the back Stuart haas he got boy and almirola below the cut line i think they're gonna try to go for broke get stage points lead laps put themselves in position to be winners all race long austin dillon probably a similar thing because chevrolet has a ton of numbers in terms of cars that are just going to be on track but we will see I, I don't know what's going to happen i actually predicted on the grid challenge this week that in his final scheduled stock car nascar start for Beard Motorsports, you know where I'm going. You know what? Send it. Full send. Why not? Brendan Gone is going to win and shock the world. I can't wait. 
Um, they are going up head to head against the NFL. So I don't know how they're going to do ratings wise, but you already know what I'll be watching, right? We'll see how it goes. Again, Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's 1 p.m. Central. There will be a select number of fans on hand on Sunday for the Yellowwood 500 at Talladega Super Speedway. Second race of the round of 12. Be sure to tune in. This is one of the best races of the year. We're on a restrictor plate track with no restrictor plate, but you get what I'm saying. It's so entertaining. Everything, almost, is on the line. You don't want to miss it. Look, that's of the week. Before we cue that funky music, white boy, we're going to talk about the schedule because this is going to be the meat and potatoes of Lugnuts. So it has been fully released. Finally, you've seen it by now for 2021. Here are the major changes. Atlanta and Darlington have two dates. Kentucky and Chicagoland are gone. Gone off the schedule, that is. They're not vanished into thin air. Road America has been added on the 4th of July, so that'll be fun. Coda, Circuit of the Americas, has been added. Homestead will be the second race weekend following Daytona. The Indianapolis Road Course has been added, and the Brickyard on the Oval has been taken away. The Bristol Spring Race will be run on dirt. Get to that in a minute. Texas will have the All-Star Race. Nashville will race on June 20th. The clash we already knew is going to be on the Daytona road course. And the 10 playoff races actually remain the same. Steve O'Donnell also revealed that low downforce races are going to happen for Nashville and both Darlington races. So that'll be fun. So let's get a little bit more into the minutia of things that are going to happen with this schedule. Um, let me pull up my tweets that I had. So there's six road courses on this schedule. So we doubled it. We went from three road courses of Sonoma, Watkins Glen, and the Roval to six. So you got Coda, Road America, Sonoma, the Glen, Indy, and the Roval. Michigan also scales back to one date this season because Atlanta and Darlington got two. That kind of needed one race to go by the wayside when you added all the other ones. And then you took ones away from Kentucky and Chicago land. So Michigan, instead of having two races, they have one. Um, again, Nashville, they have a date from Dover. So Dover has one date um, and Texas has the all-star race. Um, and they took that from SMI, or that, that stays within SMI. And Eddie Gossett just said, anything's on the table, um, different stuff going on, and we're going to be interested to see how that plays out. The thing that I also want to touch on is the dates. Bristol Dirt Race, which we'll get to in a minute, March 28th. That'll be the first new change. The first Darlington race, May 9th. I believe that's Mother's Day. May 23rd is at the Circuit of the Americas in Austin. That's going to be a great race. I can't wait to see all the cars jumbling on down into turn one. June 13th, All-Star Race at Texas. Next week, June 20th, Nashville Super Speedway. July 4th, on July 4th, Road America. Right and left turns in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. That'll be fun to see. Hopefully, I'll be there. You never know. July 11th, second race at Atlanta. 400 miles on that specific event. It's going to be hot. August 15th, again, going to be hot, Indianapolis road course. So those are the dates of the specific changes. And there's also one doubleheader that's on the 2021 schedule. It's the Pocono weekend that was previously scheduled to be a doubleheader for 2020. Obviously, we had no fans at those races, but that's going to take place June 26th and 27th of 2021. Hopefully, fans will be in attendance. Another thing, no midweek races are scheduled for 2020. 2021, excuse me. Um, Jeff Gluck, I believe, asked Ben Kennedy and Steve O'Donnell about that, 
and essentially pointed to the TV ratings about that and how there was a bit of a letdown with the midweek races, which is true. And they said that essentially it was a good experiment for this year and they couldn't make it work for next year. But that's not to say that they'll be off the table completely for years moving forward. And they also were on the Zoom call with us yesterday. Ben Kennedy had a quote I wanted to point out. He said, we want to continue to introduce new tracks to the circuit. Short tracks and road courses are always important to our fans. They didn't outright dismiss. dismiss I have a lisp all of a sudden. What the hell? They didn't outright dismiss going to the Pacific Northwest. Um, so that's always an option moving forward. And Steve O'Donnell said 2021 is a real bold step. We'll be looking to make more changes in 2022. Also said that besides new events, so besides Coda, Road America, Indy Road Course, Nashville, etc., and besides the Daytona 500, Coke 600, and the Phoenix Championship race, every single weekend, let me repeat that, every weekend besides those will be a one-day show. That's about 28 one-day shows, and then the remaining eight races, weekends, will be practice, qualifying, the usual stuff that we're used to seeing pre-pandemic. So that's interesting as well. I want to pull up Jeff Gluck's um, column that he wrote for The Athletic yesterday. I think John Haverlin, my boy, tweeted out a clip of it because he talked about the Bristol Dirt Race, and I don't think that I could say it any better. Here it is. Covering Bristol Motor Speedway with dirt for a cup points race is like painting over the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel with images of SpongeBob SquarePants. People enjoy watching SpongeBob and his friends in the places where you'd expect to find them, namely a pineapple under the sea. But putting SpongeBob on the dome of the Sistine Chapel, that's actually offensive and doesn't work at all. Cup Series cars on dirt at Bristol won't work either. This may be the worst NASCAR-related decision since Brian France added Jeff Gordon as the 13th chase driver in 2013. Tell me how you really feel, Jeff. <laughs> Jeez. Um, I don't feel that strongly. But I am not a fan of it because the thing is you're taking essentially the best track that you have and covering it with dirt and essentially saying, here's one of the best races that you'll have all year, but we're going to switch it up and do something completely unpredictable that we haven't seen before. And in his column, he also went to say basically that there's so many pristine dirt tracks across this country. Eldora, your NASCAR is clearly having some issues with Eldora, so that's off the table. But what about, I don't know, the dirt track at Charlotte, the dirt track at Texas, the dirt track at Vegas, the dirt track at any other SMI track that you have. There's one in Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But the one that he pointed to, because you would think that sponsors and race teams would want, you know, nice amenities, suites, grandstands, pits for all these people to work in. Knoxville Raceway in Iowa, 20,000 seats, unbelievable racetrack, unbelievable facility. And if you want SMI to lease it out, they can do that because they're doing that with Circuit of the Americas. And ISC is doing that with Road America. So I don't know. I, I'm i not a fan of the Bristol race on dirt. It's not going to do it for me. I hope that I'm wrong. Like I hope that it is a good race and, and it's fun to watch. I think it will be somewhat fun to watch because everybody's going to be slipping and sliding all over the place and making them look like fools. And if Kyle Larson is going to Hendrick like we always like we have heard, then he's going to put on a show too. But I don't know, man. Uh, like it's different watching, you know, dirt outlaws go on the Bristol dirt track from a while ago, or like sprint cars. It's different than watching these heavy NASCAR Cup Series stock cars. So that change specifically for me just ain't it. 
But I want to commend NASCAR for being bold with this schedule. Um, people might say, oh, there's no gateway. There's no street course. There's no this. There's no that. Blah, blah, blah. Look, man, this is progress. All right. Like first dirt race in the Cup Series in 50 years. Even though it's not at the place we wanted, we're getting it. More road courses. We've asked for those. We took a couple mile and a halfs off the schedule. If they weren't the mile and a half you wanted to be taken off, sorry, but they're still listening. That's what I think we should take away from here. They're listening. They're open to changes. This is positive, and this is exciting moving forward. All right, let's cue that funky music, white boy. Another goat is stepping away after 2020. Chad Knauss will step atop... Step atop. Step down atop the pit box after this season for William Byron. He's going to become vice president of competition for Hendrick Motorsports, so he's not leaving the fold just yet. Natalie Decker was not medically cleared to run in the truck race, so her truck was like pulled off the grid right before. Still to be determined, and we haven't heard an announcement on why, though. We don't know if it's COVID. We don't know if it's her underlying medical conditions, but hopefully she's all good, so thoughts go out to Natalie. Gracie Trotter, another female, she won the Arco West race at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway Bullring, becomes the first female to win under the ARCA banner and she earned it on merit although there was some attrition in the race I know a sunrise car blew a tire and uh, I think Jesse Love and Gio Selzy had some issues like that's pretty cool to see she's worked pretty hard this year so good to see the 99 car in victory lane seven crew chiefs were fined for loose lug nuts at Vegas in the cup series Matt McCall your race winner for Kurt Busch Greg Irwin your second place finisher Matt DiBenedetto and Seth Barber John Hunter Nemechek's crew chief Xfinity, Bruce Schlicker, great name, Ross Chastain's crew chief, Dave Rogers for Riley Herbst, Ben Bayshore for Harrison Burton, and Brian Wilson for Austin Sindrick in Xfinity Series. They were all fined 5K apiece. Woo, taking out of the checkbook. And the last note I want to say, please go look at NASCAR's official tweet about the entire schedule. I'm still cackling. Um, it essentially, they, they like did vine references for every single date on the calendar. And it's, <laughs> it's literally so funny. I can't even <coughs> see that. That's what happens when <laughs> you get me going. Uh, I think it was my boy, Tyler strong. So if it was Tyler and you're listening, shout out to you, my dude, that was unreal. And you did the comic sans with the schedule release in the morning. Oh. NASCAR Social, it's peaking right now, and I need everybody to appreciate it with me. That'll wrap things up for Episode 75 of Victory Lane 2.0. Do me a favor. If you like what you heard, please leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to this podcast. We're available wherever you get your podcasts usually. And if we're not there, let me know, and I'll try to fix that for you. But we're also usually available wherever you consume your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, anywhere you get them, we should be there. And we'll be back next week to recap Talladega, preview the Roval, talk a little bit more with Chase Cabry, part two of our installment, and everything in between. Catch you on the flip side.